You're in the water loop. This is Travis with Waterloop. I'm a huge fan of High Sierra showerheads for many reasons, including how they're incredibly water efficient, provide tremendous water pressure, and are built from solid metal with no plastic parts. I also really love supporting a small business that's based in the Sierra Nevada foothills, where their team designs and assembles all of the showerheads with parts from suppliers in California. This is a U.S. company through and through. I've also spent time talking with owner David Malcolm. He's concerned about the pressures facing our water resources and wants to make a difference. That's why he has focused his company on water conservation and energy efficiency. High Sierra Showerheads is exactly the type of product and company we need to be supporting these days. You can use promo code WATERLOOP for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. I am thrilled to be joined for this episode by Dan Benna. He is a former corporate water steward for PepsiCo and is currently a consultant for the Safe Water Network. And I met Dan a number of years ago at some water events. We crossed paths and I'm really excited that we reconnected recently and can talk about water. Dan, thanks for coming on. Travis, thank you so much for this. It's great to reconnect with you. It was really kind of serendipity, but I'm, I'm so glad it happened. Yeah, I, I honestly, uh, probably for the past 10 years, uh, since I've really been in water, have, have seen you on, you know, at events or on social media and these different places and uh, just really had a, a, a high view of your expertise and involvement oh, in the you. water sector. And so I'm, I'm excited to, to get to talk to you a little bit today. Thank you so much. Um, from from you, you were at Pepsi for how long, right? Thirty. My gosh, thirty four years. Thirty four years, absolutely, um, incredible. This is a global beverage company, right? And more, but they they are a global company. Um, so actually, Travis, they're the, the second largest food and beverage company in the world. They're the the first, the largest food and beverage company in North America. And just to give you a little bit of calibration, and, and I have to say legally, I do not work for the company, nor do I represent them in any fashion. Uh, but I was there for an awful long time. So I can tell you things like 1.2 billion people every single day eat or drink a PepsiCo product. So it really gives you an idea of the scale of the corporation. Yeah, wow, that's that's incredible. Thank you for for providing those important statistics and and perspective. How how did or how does a, a company like Pepsi view its relationship to water? Um, and and maybe how did that evolve during your you know three three decades there? So, Travis, you have to be careful with me when you ask an evolution question, because before you know it, the, the podcast will be over. So I'll try to be <laughs> as crisp as I can. Um, but, you know, having been there 34 years, I had the good fortune of being mentored by an awful lot of people that came before me. And one of those mentors is now, I think, 90 years old. His name's Harry. And he was there in the 60s. So he was working for PepsiCo internationally, doing things like water treatment and wastewater treatment systems way before um, you know, sustainable development hit the radar, way before CSR was really kind of a formal discipline. And when I started to do water stewardship as part of PepsiCo, I would use him obviously for advice. And I'd say, Harry, what do you think of this or that? And he'd say, you know, Dan, I, I just want to calibrate you. 
We've been doing things like this for as long as he was with PepsiCo and probably even before that. And I'll never forget the quote he said. He said, we don't call it, C we never called it CSR or philanthropy. We just called it good business. So he was doing things now, admittedly, probably not as, as deep and broad as PepsiCo does now or as many companies do now, but he was very, very sensitive to things like water use efficiency. He was very sensitive to engaging communities where you know they were building plants at the time, particularly in international markets. So I would say you know, the, the normal place in terms of evolution where companies usually start their water stewardship journey is the, the proverbial low-hanging fruit. And in many instances, that relates to saving water. So it's water efficiency. Because frankly, if you can save water, most of the time, you're also going to save money. And that resonates really well with CEOs and CFOs and kind of the C-suite of leadership. And the way I like to describe it is that's a great hook or a great entree into a much broader, maybe more substantive discussion around other aspects of water. So you start with the efficiency part. And at PepsiCo, we started there too. It was kind of the easiest, if you will. And then we very quickly realized that there were so many other components, right? So um, being a food and beverage company, we are absolutely, or PepsiCo is absolutely dependent on agriculture. When you consider that globally agriculture uses between 69 and 70% of global water withdrawals, you very quickly start to understand that even if PepsiCo uses say 100 billion liters of water in their direct manufacturing, that pales in comparison to the water use that's in the agricultural supply chain. So the evolution went from water efficiency in direct operations to water use efficiency and water savings and sustainable agricultural practices. And along the way, we realized there was a tremendous opportunity for genuine philanthropy and corporate social responsibility. So I was, I was so honored to kind of co-create the water portfolio of partners for the PepsiCo Foundation, which includes Safe Water Network and the Earth Institute of Columbia and water.org and a bunch of others. And so that's kind of a, you know, another part of the evolution. And the really important one that you know, we, we kind of crystallized a little bit later in the game, which I think is particularly pertinent for what you do and what you've done in your previous life, <laughs> is the idea of advocacy. <laughs> And using the might of a company like PepsiCo, you know, PepsiCo serves consumers in more countries and territories than the United Nations has members. So when you when you calibrate yourself on that, you can you can do a heck of a lot of bad with that reach, but you can do a heck of a lot of good. So I think water related advocacy is certainly one of the things that's very important for companies as they kind of evolve on this water journey. Yeah, as I've looked at environmental issues over the years and just been desperate for change, right? Whatever the topic is, water, climate change, you know, plastic and waste and so forth. I've always, you know, I've always felt like it, we needed the corporate leadership to get the real change. You know, mm -hmm. uh, government can be a, a great change agent for sure, NGOs and all that. But you got if if you get a a, a powerful business uh, making that change, then that's the way to go. Um, well, you know, Travis, what's kind of cool is you know you, you've heard the term like the planets aligning, right? <laughs> I think even though we are faced with I'd say unprecedented challenge at the moment. I mean, we thought climate change was bad, and it is. We thought water insecurity was bad, and it is with 2.2 billion people not having access to safe water. And there's a whole litany of statistics. But the good news is, I think the planets have aligned where the private sector business 
is now legitimately seen as a force for good. Now, not always. It's not all Pollyanna and apple pie and motherhood. But when they do it right, the effects are unbelievable. Because when you think again of the reach of just one company, and you think that you know PepsiCo went from, and I know this is true of, of PepsiCo's competitors and peers, they went from essentially not even being invited to the halls of the United Nations, because in many ways it was it was the United Nations was was government for government by government. And with very few exceptions, did the private sector engage legitimately. The MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals, started that a little bit, but I would say not in earnest. I mean, there were a couple of examples of companies that were getting involved with the MDGs, but not not to any great extent. Then the SDGs happened, the Sustainable Development Goals, right? 17 goals, 169 targets, I mean, a whole bunch of indicators. They were, they were ratified by 193 countries across the world. And to me, I always say they're going to put something about the SDGs on my tombstone because I, I bring them up virtually into every conversation. I call them God's gift to humanity because there is literally something for everyone. If you care about anything, you can find it in the construct of the SDGs. And the really cool part is the United Nations has done almost a 180 degree turnaround where not only are they you know, tolerating the private sector, but they're actually inviting the private sector to the party because they understand that solutions to these challenges, Travis, are not gonna be solved by any government, by any international organization. They're gonna be solved by all of those together. And private sector is a big player. One of the things when we, we had a previous conversation about the uh, SDGs is you talked about the way water uh, is kind of connected throughout. Um, and I was wondering if you could kind of share those those thoughts yeah. again. Such an yeah, important so, point, right? You know, I, I love um, I love this idea of systems thinking. And, and when I lecture to colleges and universities, I tend to, to ask them about SDGs because when, when I see an undergrad that has taken, you know, a course in systems thinking or systems design, I always like to challenge them a little bit with, okay, how do you actually apply that? And I think one of the best frameworks to apply that is the SDGs. You can't talk about SDG 6, which is all about water and sanitation, without understanding SDG 2, right, which is all about global agriculture and food insecurity. You can't do that without talking about gender equity because water is really important from a gender equity lens. You can't do it without talking about goal 17, which is partnerships for the goals, international partnerships and collaboration. So water really is the common thread, I think, that goes through all of the SDGs. But in particular, um, one of the things that I really, I give the United Nations such kudos for the process that they followed, um, the process of engagement and stakeholder engagement when they designed these SDGs. I, I have never seen a more inclusive campaign to involve academics and governments and individuals and NGOs to get their input about the importance of the SDGs before they were formed. And I think the result of that, Travis, is that SDG 6 around water is one of the most comprehensive goals that I can see because they, they really did take that systems approach. I mean, there's an element about drinking water. There's an element about sanitation. There's one about water quality and pollution. There's one about water efficiency, which is kind of where we started our conversation, right? Improving your water use efficiency. There's one more broadly about the water resources and international management of water resources. There's an ecosystems component. And then finally, they realize to get any and all of those done, you're gonna need cooperation, 
from multiple stakeholders and at the international level. So even that's embedded in the targets for SDG 6. Incredible. I love and, it. And SDGs are remarkable. I, 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 I think that this also connects to the idea of water as a human right. Yeah. Um, this is something you hear, I think, more and more. Uh, you've, I think it's been said uh, in the, in internationally for a longer time, especially yeah. in the developing world. Um, you're starting to hear this creep into the conversation in the United States, I think, yeah. as yeah. people realize that there's, there's, millions of people in the country here that don't have access to, to safe, yeah. clean water. Uh, when you have water shutoffs and coronavirus shows that everyone doesn't have equal access to water. But it's also, yeah. I guess, maybe in the US and some other developed countries, there's a little controversy to calling it a human right, because you're yeah. almost suggesting people should have it for free. Um, yeah. What's your take? So I, I, uh, again, this could kind of be a, a podcast on its own, <laughs> Travis, because um, when I was at PepsiCo, the, the uh, stakeholders came to us and said, you know, what do you know about human right to water? And frankly, at that point, I didn't know anything. I didn't even know that the UN was considering one. And then over, you know, I'll fast forward because over a number of years of really intense involvement with, with different stakeholder groups and with experts in the field, um, PepsiCo became one of the first companies of its size that actually came out with a public commitment to respect water as a human right. And let me tell you, even though it sounds simple to say, of course, we respect that water is a human right for everyone, it is probably one of the most complicated topics on so many levels that you can imagine. And let me just explain a little bit why. So when you, when you talk about human right to water, there's essentially five elements that the uh, High Commissioner of Human Rights has recognized. Safety, sufficiency, accessibility, acceptability and affordability. And you know as well as I do, being an expert in this field, Travis, that any one of those can cause kind of lightning rods, depending on which stakeholder group you might be talking about. So imagine the collection of all five of those. Imagine trying to implement that at an international level across developed, developing and emerging markets. And, and I want to just say, I mean, I want to calibrate because when last month, July 28th, was 10 years, it was the 10-year anniversary of when the UN actually formally ratified human right to water. And unfortunately, um, 43 countries abstained from the, from the vote about ratifying that. US was one of them, Canada was one, Japan was one. And their reasons varied from um, procedural to actually more substantive issues. But you hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, people are a little bit worried about this. And, and they're worried about it, number one, because is it, does it fall legitimately into the domain of human rights? Because human rights have been around for a long time and, and, and they have you know, a certain lexicon and they have a certain uh, group of stakeholders that are passionate about them. So bringing water as a human right was kind of new to them. That's one thing. The other thing is it's really, really hard to document compliance against all five of those elements. And I think that's probably the biggest part of some of the consternation is it's one thing to, to kind of give this global approval of, oh yes, as a country, we support that and we will do our job or our obligation of respecting, protecting and fulfilling that right. It's another thing to be able to get the metrics equitably for every single human being in your country. I mean, that's really what it comes down to because it's, it's safe water for all. If it's a human right, Every single person on the planet is privy to that right. So how the heck do you prove that? Now, I do want to say, because you mentioned the U.S., and this is one opportunity where, you know, California does a lot of things. And they, 
they are probably one of the more, um, I, I'll, I'll say progressive states in terms of regulations. Now, are they perfect? No. I mean, no state is perfect. No person is perfect, right? But at least they draw lines in the sand for certain things. And, and one of the things they did in particular, in 2012, there was a thing, uh, AB 685 in California, where they were the first state in the United States to at least formally recognize and embed water as a human right into their legislative process. And that's since been followed up in uh, February of 2016, where now all of the state water boards Whenever there is like a large infrastructure investment or a large policy change, the, the water boards are supposed to take human right to water and its elements into those discussions. So, again, not all the way to bright by any means. But when you think 15 million people a year, Travis, have their water shut off in the United States of America for inability to pay, that gets directly back to the affordability aspect of water as a human right. So, I mean, there's just I, I won't go on and on, but I could. But it's just it's something that I'm really passionate about because I think it deserves to be called a human right. That does not mean that it's free because there's obviously costs associated with purifying and treating it and conveying it and giving people the assurance that the water is safe every single time you turn on the tap. But I'll tell you that this dialogue has been going on now for a decade, and I'm sure it will go on for at least a decade more. Yeah, very, very interesting stuff there. Um, I'm curious, you mentioned the five pieces of that. You said yeah. you said acceptability. That was yeah. the one that I was not totally sure what you meant by that one. Well, you know, you zeroed right in on <laughs> one of the more difficult ones to prove. And it's it's frankly even a little bit difficult to explain. But my my explanation is acceptability is essentially acceptability to the, the key stakeholders within a community. So for example, um, it, it gets back to kind of free and prior informed free and free and prior informed consent where if um, a company for example or even a government is going to build something within a community there are specific requirements or specific expectations under that acceptability component that they include the right stakeholders within the community before major decisions are made and actually making the community part of those decisions. And I mean, you can imagine how difficult that is, right? That That's so different to the way both governments and, and frankly, companies have operated for you know hundreds of years. It's more like, well, it makes sense to do for the business or makes sense to do for the government. Let's do it. And then we can kind of deal with what comes afterward. This is a very, it's, it's a bit of a nuance, but it's very significant in terms of the process of how you deem acceptability to all of the stakeholders involved. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that for sure. me. Definitely appreciate it. Um, since we're kind of on this now talking about the U.S. and the rest of the world, especially yeah. the developing world, um, you know, you have a lot of experience uh, around the globe. What do you think are some of the lessons that the U.S. could take from even the developing world when yeah. it comes to water management? Yeah. So I think... Um, I'll tell you, Jeff, so let me answer in two ways. One is kind of more tactical, and one is maybe a little bit more philosophical, maybe even bordering on spiritual, which maybe is not a bad thing. Yeah. Um, the more tactical one, I would say, is around infrastructure. So, you know, not that many years ago, it was 2017, I think, the American Society for Civil Engineers um, did a scorecard of various different infrastructure in the U.S., 
And the U.S. got a grade of D, not quite a failure of F, but a grade of D. And it was not the first time that they got the D, um, specifically for the drinking water infrastructure and the quality and condition of the drinking water infrastructure in the U.S. So just to kind of give you some examples, there's about a million miles of drinking water pipes just within the U.S. And unfortunately, there's about 240,000 main breaks every single year in the U.S., which relate to or, or reflect about two trillion gallons of water lost every year. So, you know, this idea of huge, massive infrastructure worked well uh, 100 years ago when many of the mains and, and much of the piping was put in. In fact, it was progressive and visionary at the time because, you know, we were moving away from hand-pumped wells and we were going into this phenomenal new thing called water infrastructure. We, we as a developed country, need to at some point look back and say, is the way that we've done things for 100 or 200 or 300 years necessarily the best way. Now, I know that's, you know that's an easy thing for me to sit here and say, okay, that's what leaders of government have to do, because there's an estimate of about a trillion dollars needed over the next 25 years just to effectively maintain the current infrastructure that we have for drinking water. But let me contrast that to what some developing countries are doing. And actually, this gets back to uh, I think you mentioned that I'm a consultant for Paul Newman's charity, the Safe Water Network. Safe Water Network has been built on this idea of a small water enterprise. And it's essentially a locally owned water business, and they have a lot of them in Ghana, in India. They're serving about a million and a half people. Um, but it's a small decentralized system. It removes those massive monolithic kind of water infrastructures and errs on the side of micro utilities and safe water stations and water anytime machines. And they're, I mean, really successful. And actually, they're on an upswing in terms of growth in developed and developing countries. I mean, I mentioned India and Ghana, but there are um, small water enterprise implementers in many countries across the world. So I'd say looking at the way we do infrastructure is definitely one lesson that we can learn, particularly for new megacities. You know, when, when we start to do these kind of new massive developments, let's think twice about some other opportunities that might be out there. The second really important thing, Travis, and this is kind of the, the less tangible one, Let's go there. Let's go there. It's good stuff. Valuing water. Mm. And when I say that, I make a distinction between value, price, and cost. To me, valuing water is something that really does have spiritual linkage, like the, the water of the Ganges in India, right? It really does have visceral reactions to people. I mean, look at our bodies. I mean, what percentage of our bodies are water? Right? We, would, we would be dead on so many levels without water. So there's almost this innate linkage to humanity that water has. And I've seen metaphors on television, various documentaries that describe water as essentially the life's blood of the planet. And when you step back to a satellite view and look at the rivers and estuaries, it's remarkable because it looks like a breathing human being with all of the kind of blood or the water going through them. So I would say that unless and until people value water psychologically and mentally and, and, and spiritually, you will never be able to have them be happy with the price and cost, right? The first part is understanding value. Do we value it in the US? Well, you know, that's arguable. I think many people do for sure. When you consider, however, that US is among, I mean, actually it's the, the top water user in terms of water use per day of any of the developed countries, 
of 30 developed countries. So U.S. people, U.S. citizens use about 300 gallons of water per day. Now, I find it difficult to say with a broad brush that everyone values water when you use 300 gallons a day because that is remarkable. I mean, there are countries out there that use 20 gallons a day per person, right? It's just it's just a remarkable inequity there. Um, I would say that, and this brings me back about a decade ago, when I was approached by a professor of gender studies at North, Northwestern University, um, she's remarkable. And she had this idea and this passion where she wanted to do a documentary called Water Pressures. And she wanted to look less about the technical aspects of water and more about the, the human aspects of water. So she took a class of students from the Midwest, right, from the Chicago area. She took them to Rajasthan, India, and it was a full immersion for a month. So she took them there for a trip. Let me tell you, Travis, you talk about learning about water and respecting and valuing water. To see these kids' reactions when they were exposed to what real water stress and scarcity looked like, what real valuation of water looked like, the fact that you know it, the, these factoids about women and girls not being able to go to school because they're forced to, to walk sometimes 30 minutes round trip just to collect water and carry it back, those no longer were kind of these facts that you see in a book or on Google. These kids were actually needing the girls and the women that had to do that, and it's remarkable. So I would say, one thing is learn about the infrastructure. The other thing is learn from, from societies that have come before us by thousands of years and understand the wisdom that they bring. And it's not just wisdom of engineering, it's wisdom of understanding. Absolutely. I want to ask about success stories and progress and solutions. Oh. You know, um, yeah. you, you had a, a a lot of involvement with partnerships and collaborations, I think, at PepsiCo. Yeah. You mentioned agriculture. Um, you know, I, I really like to try to highlight some of these positive things. Sure. What are what are some of your favorite approaches or stories or successes yeah. when it comes to solving water problems, especially, you know, in a kind of a partnership yeah. collaborative way? And Travis, I'm glad you asked that because I, I think I told you in one of our conversations that I have three older sisters. And they look at me, they, they call me a pathologic optimist because they think they, they think that optimism means that I'm blind to the ills of society. And in fact, nothing could be more farther from the truth because I obviously understand the ills, but I make a choice to focus on the things that work. Because if I didn't see solutions, if I didn't see that light at the end of a very, very long, dark tunnel, which is what we're all currently in as humanity, I don't know that I'd want to be able to get out of bed every day. And I do. I jump out of bed every day because I know these solutions. And, you know, if I can talk in the context of what the private sector brings, you know, I've already alluded to kind of the role that the private sector plays. There are so many coalitions that have been built over the last five or 10 years, particularly around water. One that I'm, I'm so honored to have been a part of is the UN Global Compact, which is, you know, has the imprimatur of the United Nations, is really um, a campaign, an organization, an initiative for business. And business leaders engage. And one of the, the work streams is the CEO water mandate. So the CEO of the company has to endorse six principles of water stewardship before a company can be part of that mandate. And I tell you, Travis, for being within the construct of the UN, which I always thought was just so difficult to navigate, 
the CEO water mandate runs themselves very much like a business. So they have the discipline and the rigor of business and project management, and they're able to speak collectively with the voice of the private sector across multiple different sectors. I mean, there are, you know, food and beverage, there's electric, there's power, there's uh, textiles, there's just about every kind of sector within the private sector that you can think of represented at the mandate. And um, some of the things that they've put out, I mean, they, they put out a lot of documentation, very, very collaborative, but there's there's one that I'm particularly proud of. And it's called the Water Action Hub. And I think it's actually as simple as wateractionhub.org. But um, it's basically a way to reduce fragmentation in the sector. Because one of the things we noticed you know, early on our water journey was there are an awful lot of organizations and NGOs and companies that are doing almost identical things related to water in very nearly the same geographies. Now, right then and there you say, okay, there's gotta be some productivity gains, some efficiency gains, right? You, there has to be a way to prevent redundant efforts and certainly redundant spending by bringing these things together. Well, CEO Water Mandate heard that feedback and they created this Water Action Hub. There's about 4,500 geographic locations represented in the hub. There's about 1,500 projects. And as of uh, 45 minutes ago, there were about 1,000 organizations represented. So anybody can go on to wateractionhub.org if you're a small company or a large company or an NGO or an academic and says, I want to work at this particular river basin with this particular community in this particular corridor of Brazil, you can find what activity is happening there and reach out and say, okay, can we collaborate? So I think, you know, collaboration is, is it sounds a little bit pat. That is the secret to success as far as I'm concerned. And, and the collaborations have to be really multi-stakeholder. Can't just be talking to ourselves. You know, it can't be Pepsi, Coke, and Unilever because we're all food and beverage companies, right? It's got to be strange bedfellows, right? It's got to be governments engaged. It's got to be academics engaged, NGOs engaged, citizens engaged. I mean, that's, that's really cool. When you start to go to the voice of the customer or voice of the consumer and understand what individuals are thinking about water, you know, it's, it's, it's very easy to get caught up in kind of singing to the choir, if you, if you understand that metaphor. Um, so I think the more diverse, the more inclusive one can be with these kinds of collaborations, the more successful they are. The other thing I want to say uh, in terms of successes, and this is one I hope you'll bear with me because I know I'm, I'm talking an awful lot, Travis. No, but great, great, great examples. Absolutely. Thank no, you. Go ahead. Thank you. So there's one, um, and this is a little bit of a setup because when, so I used to chair the Water Quality Committee of the American Beverage Association, which is basically a DC-based um, advocacy group for the beverage industry. And I was called one day. Um, by someone at ABA. And they said, you know, we have an opportunity. Congress is asking for metrics that are representative of efficient water use in the beverage industry. Can you share the data that you have as an industry? I said, let me get back to you. I engaged the necessary people. And we were frankly embarrassed and floored, Travis. And this is, I I'm going to say maybe 15 years ago, we did not have a collective voice as an industry, nor did we have collective metrics. We did not have an anonymous collective database. So we essentially had to say to the U.S. Congress, which would have been a remarkable opportunity to show leadership, 
uh, sorry, but we're going to have to graciously decline because we don't really have a whole lot to say. Well, shame on us. We learned very quickly. We we very quickly, and actually, thanks to Coca-Cola, really took an initiative with this and then brought PepsiCo onto the, into the fray. Um, we started something called BEER, B-I-E-R, and it stands for the Beverage Industry Environmental Roundtable. And let me tell you, Travis, that I think is, again, one of the most effective collaborations now, very specifically within the beverage industry, but broadly within the beverage industry. There are members from distilled spirits, from wine companies, juice bottlers, bottled water bottlers, and virtually every aspect of beverages are included now in beer. And one of the things they started was an anonymous database through which every member can put in water use efficiency metrics. Fast forward, you know, I think it was about four years after that that fateful day where we said, sorry, Congress, we don't really know what to say. We got another opportunity to kind of testify before them. And the head of beer very successfully did so. And boy, was he armed with data. And, you know, it just it presented, number one, a really positive sign of leadership as the industry. But it also shows, you know, we were doing kind of science based things before this kind of groundswell of interest in science-based targets, right? We didn't realize it at the time, but my gosh, it, it's just such a powerful advocacy tool when you have data upon which to base that advocacy. And now today, beer has now expanded from uh, not only water, but also climate. So it's, it remains a really effective, a really effective collaboration. I appreciate all three of those examples there. I think there was three that you gave. Excellent stuff. You know, I lost track. <laughs> I've always, uh, I've always wondered about how many environmental groups there are. How many, you know, whether it's working on water in in Africa or working in the United States, and it's just like it seems like there's so many redundant efforts, and it's like why is there not a consolidation? I understand some of the reasons, but it's like there's so many out there that water action seems like a great way to to leverage and consolidate without actually consolidating yeah. organizations. Well, you know, uh, Travis, it's interesting because, you know, I, I've been speaking a lot about kind of from the private sector lens. There were some really eye openers that happened to me when I joined Safe Water Network as a consultant. And, and there's an interesting twist to Safe Water Network because they've been around now for about 12 years when uh, Paul Newman started it with John Whitehead, who was the former assistant uh, deputy secretary of state under Ronald Reagan, and a guy named um, Josh Weston, who was the CEO of ADP. Josh is still very active on the board of Safe Water Network, so there's remarkable continuity there. But the reason I bring them up is um, PepsiCo Foundation was an inaugural funder 12 years ago because of whatever influence I was able to have at PepsiCo at the time, I brought Safe Water Network to PepsiCo Foundation and they funded them. So for quite a few years, I knew Safe Water Network as a funder and it was great. And they were, you know, I, I saw them build these safe water, small water enterprises. I saw them expand into India and Ghana and I saw that all of the stuff they were doing to, to build the evidence base. And then two years ago when I left PepsiCo, the CEO of Safe Water Network came to me and said, I'm not sure what you have planned for your next chapter, but would you want to consult? And now I've been seeing them very much through the lens of almost an employee as opposed to a funder. And it's it's remarkable. It is remarkable to see that, number one, um, NGO competition is very alive and well. And, and that's something that, frankly, naively, I thought, you know, NGOs are the purest. There's no such thing as competition. But 
The reality is, of course, they have to compete for funding in a very aggressive world. But one of the things Safe Water Network does, almost analogous to beer, is they started this community of practice. And they said, you know what, we're kind of just as guilty as as promoting fragmentation in the sector if we don't do something about it. So they've done, they're doing something about it through this community of practice, which is really cool. It's definitely a model that kind of needs to be replicated. One question that's been on my mind all all during our conversation here, I just want sure. to, so I, I want to get back to it a little bit. Um, this uh, phrase greenwashing, right? Yeah. It's the idea that the corporate world is doing things or or positioning themselves, doing marketing um, for the sake of looking like they're environmentally friendly and you know appealing to consumers that way, but yeah. it's not authentic. Um, you know, maybe that's not actually their actions aren't that great, or yeah. they um, don't really care <laughs> the way that they are. Uh, posturing uh, that they do care. So I was just curious uh, your, your take on, on greenwashing, because I think it's, yeah. there's a lot of cynical people out there these days, right? And they, they see things that companies are doing, and they, they throw that label around a lot. So Travis, let me, you know, as you know, I think already, and as your viewers know, I, I tell stories. And I, I think in terms of stories, even though I'm, I'm a scientist, uh, you would think I think primarily in terms of data, but I kind of roll that data up into stories. So bear with me, because there is a story that I think is pertinent to this. And it goes back, um, you know, I, I'm honored to serve on the board of quite a few not-for-profits. And the very first one that asked me to serve on the board was an organization called Creative Visions Foundation. And it was started, uh, it's essentially uh, an organization that uses media and the arts to ignite social change. And they are about as pure an NGO that I can get because many of their members are documentary film producers. They have a passion, they scrimp and save to make the documentary and they get the message out there, right? Before I was asked to be on the board, I kind of almost serendipitously met the founder, who's a woman, her name is Kathy Eldon, and her son, Dan Eldon, was a photojournalist for Reuters. He was unfortunately stoned to death when he was 22 years old in Somalia, about 20, 22 years ago. And that was kind of the spark that ignited Kathy's passion for wanting to use media in honor of her son to change the world. When she met with me the first time, Honestly, you could almost feel the ice forming between us because when she heard that she was going to be speaking to someone at PepsiCo, I mean, after all, a company that's known for salty snacks, for, you know, high fructose corn syrup containing beverages, and obviously they do a lot more, but in many people's minds, that's kind of what they think of PepsiCo as. It was almost like she was meeting the Antichrist. It was the funniest thing to kind of walk into this room and feel that. But as with most things which is particularly pertinent for all the stuff that's happening today, if you can engage on a one-on-one level, Travis, which I did with Kathy, and I started to tell her you know, a little bit about my background and about why I'm working for a company like PepsiCo, and it really, really was to change the world for the better. It wasn't because I love their products, although I do. It was because when you see the reach that a company like that can have and the impact you can have, if you can channel it, it's remarkable. She ended up saying, and I'll never forget this quote, by the end of the conversation, I never knew people like you existed in large companies. And Travis, let me tell you, having only known the private sector for most of my adult career, 
that struck me as so weird that anybody would even think that. Now, maybe in retrospect, that was naive for me not to realize that obviously that specter is out there. But I almost took a took an affront. I, I almost was like, Kathy, what do you mean? Every single one of us are like this. Every one of the 300,000 employees cares about something. They're passionate about something. They want to change the world for the better. So when you use the term greenwashing or bluewashing, right, as it, as it pertains to water, which is often used, it, it's so frustrating to be an insider, to know what is legitimately being done and having to battle those cries and those criticisms of bluewashing. Now, I'm very quick to say, does any company do everything 100% right? Absolutely not nor does PepsiCo, nor does any company anywhere in the world. But I think what you have to look at is their motivation, and you have to look at the data and the proof points that they use to back up the story. And I think companies, by and large, have gotten really, really much better at that. And a lot of it is in direct response to those claims of greenwashing and bluewashing, because I think there was some truth to that. You know, when those claims were first levied, the initial reaction was, oh, absolutely not us. No matter which company you worked for, that's that's almost the, the human reaction is, no, it can't be. And then when you, you take a, a really eye-opening kind of objective look, you start to say, oh, you know, I could see how they might think that, or I could see how they might believe that. But again, it comes down to this one-on-one -on -one conversation. And one of the, you know, PepsiCo has these guiding principles and, and leadership behaviors, and it sounds I mean, it sounds almost too good to be true, but I've lived it for three decades. One of them is speaking with truth and candor, which, I mean, frankly, everyone from the CEO to the frontline workers on the trucks do. And the second is assuming positive intent. And, I, you know, yeah, you can really get burned if you assume positive intent too much, like at one end of the pole. But what I always say is there's not a whole lot of life at either one of the poles in nature, right? There's a lot of life in between. And that's the way I like to approach things. I think somewhere in between polarized views and opinions is where reality lies. And, and that's what I strive to get toward. When people say you're greenwashing or bluewashing, I'm like, all right, let's understand why you say that. Now listen to my opinion and let's meet somewhere in the middle. Absolutely. Last thing I want to ask you is, sure. is for your advice um, to consumers out there that care about water and, oh. and that want to drive corporations, companies to be better water stewards, yeah. uh, you know, and whatever that might mean. I, I, do, I do also see that consumers seem to have a good bit of influence these days as they're demanding more sustainable products and, and practices. Yeah. Um, so people that are out there that care, that want to influence corporations who then can make tremendous change, yeah. what, what would you say to them? So Travis, I have lived through this um, and it's not hyperbole to say hundreds of times when I was at PepsiCo, because one of, you know, one of the things that I really enjoyed about my role was I got to engage with different functions across the company, including consumer relations, public policy, government affairs, um, corporate communication. So I had this kind of interesting melange of exposure to these different functions. And I would say that I don't know, you know, maybe companies will kill me for giving this advice, but um, you kind of already alluded to it. I would say that consumers should not underestimate the power of their voice. And it's their voice both individually 
and collectively. And you know, one of the quotes, and I'm probably going to get this wrong, so it will end up being a paraphrase, but um, anthropologist Margaret Mead is often credited with saying, never for a moment doubt that a single committed individual can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. And, and I say that with all candor and honesty, Travis, because I've seen it. I mean, you, you see Greta Thunberg, right? You see Malala. You see these single 12-year-old, 13-year-old girls. There's one, there's one person, uh, Severn Suzuki, back uh, 25 years ago. She was 11 years old. And you can Google it on YouTube if you put girl at UN. Um, 25 years ago, she addressed leaders of the United Nations, of heads of state. And when I tell you she gave them a dressing down, it is remarkable that they sat there and didn't leave the room. She was 11 years old and it was all about environment. And she said, it's your fault that my generation is inheriting what we're inheriting. It's your fault that waterways are polluted. It's your fault. And she just lambasted them with this litany of things. Let me tell you about how sobering that is, right? Now, you fast forward 25 years, sadly, many of those same issues are, are still ones with which we're grappling. But I mean, it, it really speaks to the power of the individual, the power of small collections or small collectives. Um, one of the, you know, there's, a, there's a bunch of studies that are done and I'm kind of like an insights, I love hmm. consumer insights and I'm like a pack rat. And there are several studies that suggest over the last five years, not only are consumers, particularly millennials and those that are coming after them, not only are they using their voice in terms of purchasing, so you know, buying products that are environmentally and socially positive, but they're actually going the extra step and they're punishing companies that aren't and they're becoming much more actively engaged against the companies on social media. And we all know the power of social media, Travis. I mean, it it really does rise very quickly to the level of the CEO. I don't care if it's a small company or a large multinational. CEOs are forced to listen. So it's the power of the individual is one, using their purchasing power, using their advocacy power, particularly on social media. Don't think twice about looking up how to get in touch with the CEO and contacting the CEO of companies directly because you talk about getting motivation. Once a CEO gets an email, particularly from a younger kid, uh, 99 times out of 100, they're gonna ensure that there's some action taken. And then the other whole part of this, now this is also individuals, but it's kind of an interesting part of an individual, and that's investors, the investment community. People who buy and own stock have a very different kind of voice than consumers. I mean, you can do both, certainly, but I mean, there's a guy, Larry Fink, right, who's the CEO of BlackRock. It's the largest private investment firm. There's close to $8 trillion in assets under management. And you talk about a big stick to wield, $8 trillion is pretty big. <laughs> the last several years, he has been using that investment might to say, purpose is important for companies. It's no longer just about profit. It's about expanding how we define business value, ensuring social license to operate and grow and thrive, right? Being a part of a community, not apart from a community. Looking at things like climate-related disclosures. They just recently put out a whole white paper on water scarcity. Remarkable. I mean, they, they, 
they tell it like it is. They don't hold back anything in this paper. And that's a really, really strong tool to people is using not only their voice from a consumer perspective, but their voice and, and might as an investor. Incredible stuff. Great advice, Dan. Wonderful perspective. Great information. Thanks, I know we can keep going and going and going. I love it. <laughs> and we'll connect another time for another another chat. But I, I, too. I, exactly. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Dan. Thanks, Travis. Take care. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. The Waterloop Podcast is brought to you by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart and stylish way to save water energy, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Use promo code WATERLOOP for 20% off at HighSierraShowerHeads.com. You're in the Waterloop. You're in the Waterloop.